today's podcast, we're going to talk with Chad Millman about trying to figure out betting on some of these NFL futures. Also, his story, work together, ran ESPN the magazine, ESPN.com, some fun stuff there. Slam Ball, do you remember it? You do if you're my age. It's back, and it's back Friday. Mason Gordon is the founder, creator, and a former player. So we'll chat with him about Slam Ball coming back, life advice, and an open about maybe reminding ourselves that every NBA decision doesn't have to be made as soon as we learn about the story. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. I didn't think I had another open in me about James Harden and Damian Lillard, but I do. I have one, so I'm going to share it with you now. Daryl Morey has some quotes that we'll get to here from Tuesday at a Philadelphia radio interview, which I think plays into kind of this whole thing. So look, when I do this podcast, when I do the monologue specifically, and I have uh, an opinion, I usually have pretty strong conviction with that opinion. It's based on putting it together, some thoughts, looking up some stuff. And then I share it with you. And that's kind of the formula. But I think there are different times in sports where I'll, I'll wonder, like, wait, should I hold off on thinking this is already done? Should I, should I remind myself that we potentially could be going through something where it's just a, a little reminder or p- perhaps a lesson about how things can still work? And for Harden and Lillard, we could be in that right now. We could be. And I think it's a good reminder for not only me, but for all of us that when the player asks out, we shouldn't expect that it's going to happen within hours, right? Because the Lillard thing's been three plus week. The Harden thing's been right before he picked up the option, which was weird. But again, he picked up that option knowing it was going to be easier for him to be traded to the team that he wanted to go to instead of just being a straight up free agent and then signing somewhere else for likely less money than even the option was in the first year, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. You're like, well, wait, you're, if you wanted freedom, you picked up the option. It's like, no, 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 I expect things to go my way so well that I'm going to pick up the option and demand a trade and then be able to sign an extension off of this option. So yeah, I want all of those things. And you're like, wait, is that how it works? You're like, yeah, it kind of works that way, right? So I'm just asking without knowing the answer if we're in the beginning of a, of a lesson here of understanding that Maybe we shouldn't close the door on all these other potential options when these demands are being made in late June and early July for a season that, again, I think starts a little bit later this year. Uh, When you look at Daryl Morey's quote, again, this is from Tuesday, 
talking about potentially trading Harden. He says this, quote, if we do look at a trade, it's going to be for one of two things. A player who's going to help us be right there like we were last year, or we're going to trade for picks that we can use to turn into a player that could be a running mate with Joel. If we can't get that, then we are not going to do it. Now, this comment is also backed up with other different stories uh, all over the place this week where other teams are telling insiders that basically based on Maury's demands for what he'd want in Harden trade, that they don't really want to move hard. First of all, what's Maury supposed to say? Uh, he's not going to go on radio being like, you know what? This, we think his best days are behind him. Like you get a declining asset and he's going to be expensive and he's going to want a new contract. Like we'd probably just move him for a guy who just cracks our top eight. You're not going to say that about your own asset. And we also know with Maury's history. Now, granted, whatever my own BS with him is, I respect the hell out of him as a GM. I think he's terrific. And I think for the most part, when it's these bigger ticket items, he's not going to give in. I mean, he'd even said before, two years ago, when Ben Simmons was there, and the fear was with Ben Simmons, it's like, no, he's going to say he has a back injury, right? Because that's always the fear of the teams, that the player decides that they want to hold out. They can certainly just say, yeah, you know what? I got a second opinion and I'm not clear and you still have to pay them. But in the case of Simmons, he went with a mental health part of it. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I don't really feel like talking about that part of it anymore. But Maury had even said that if we have to wait out the entire four years remaining on the contract, we'll do that. Now, I don't think that was going to happen. But what Maury did is he flipped him for Harden because of Harden's own issues in Brooklyn. And he waited. Right? He waited. That was a great example of a GM where I think lesser GMs would have gone like, okay, Ben Simmons wants out. I know he's got all these years left in his contract, but he's with a powerful agency in clutch. And you know what? Like, I just got to move him. I'll just move him for pieces that I know I don't really want in a Ben Simmons trade because still Ben Simmons value was the perception of it was still a lot higher than it is now. But Maury didn't give in right away. The Harden situation presents itself that was not there in the beginning of the year because the Brooklyn thing had to go bad for Harden to say, you know what, I'm out of here. I don't want to play with Kyrie. And the opportunities, the options, however you want to frame it, those things changed. Okay? So that's kind of what I'm asking here. Um, what if we actually, to steal a line from Simmons, what if we are having a moment? What if we're having a moment where we're seeing the beginning of teams saying, you know what, you're not just going to get everything you want, especially as we explore an area with Lillard where it's four years remaining, where Harden, we know it's just a player option. But Philadelphia is looking at it differently than Portland is because they're like, hey, we feel like we are in the conversation, which I think is completely fair and accurate about who they are potentially coming out of the East if things were to break their way. Um, I think it was very specific that Daryl Morey when he talked about last season, said we were up 3-2 on one of the best teams in the NBA. So that's him selling the idea. And I think there's a little part of that that's self-serving too, is that, hey, we were right there with, we were up a game. Now, the reason, why did you lose game six and seven? I think you can reference any of my previous podcasts to go back and, and understand how I feel about that. I don't even know if we are in the beginning of anything. It could just be, as I also like to say, you know, just because something happens, it doesn't mean it's actually something. But I think it's just a nice reminder, okay? Uh, what if Maury changes the way he feels, not in July, but October? Then maybe Harden gets his way. What if Harden? I mean, it's easy to do this shit when it's July, okay? There aren't any games. What if Harden goes, all right, I tried. 
I said everything I could say. I told every reporter, every dude in the mix that I was never going back to Philadelphia. But guess what? I got to get that next contract. I got to come back and play. And I've got to play well. And this isn't just about Philadelphia and what we're trying to accomplish. Selfishly, it's about what I'm trying to accomplish because Harden's already cost himself so much money not picking up previous extensions that he could have had. Like, he screwed this up. But what if his mind changes? You ever change your mind? You ever, you are you ever emphatic that you will not do this? Not on my watch. Not on my boat. And then the thing that you said that you'd never do, you're like, ah, shit. Like, I guess I got to do this. I mean, you're lying if you have never done that before. Now, it can feel a little different when we're talking about pro athletes because they're used to getting their way because they're so special at what they do, so much more special than what we do most of the time, our day-to-day. But I think we've closed the door on what's a normal practice and decision-making. We've kind of collectively in the NBA world closed the door on the concept of just people involved going, yeah, actually, you know, I tried. And it didn't work out. I don't know if that would happen with Harden. I don't know if it would happen with Maury. But why can't we wait in, until October until that happens? Um, I just think it's a really common mistake of thinking that it's days away from happening once a request is made. Now, if we were to learn something about Harden, and this is kind of leaking out there a bit, that Harden was promised something a year ago. That's why he took the pay cut. That's why they were able to build out the rest of the roster. Harden even said numerous times this season that he almost felt like he wasn't getting enough credit for the pay cut. Nobody really cared. But if Harden were promised something and Philadelphia didn't live up to that promise in the negotiations leading up to Harden demanding the trade, then I will 100% be on Harden's side. Probably didn't expect to hear me say that today. Uh, I don't know what information we'll get. I don't know if we'll get it. I don't know if we'll find out. Probably. But then again, will it be accurate? Will you trust the person that's that's presenting that information? But here's the other part of the Harden bet that you're trying to figure out as you enter the season. Okay, go back to when he didn't want to be in Houston, uh, shows up completely out of shape, then was going to get in trouble for not reporting on time. But then there was the COVID part of it, which actually cleared him from it. So he kind of lucked out. The way he played in Brooklyn at the end, we've been over all these things before. But entering the season, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know what? Like Harden's the worst guy you could have going into a season without his like not wanting to be there because we've already seen it two times before okay but he was younger then figured he was still always going to get his money no matter where he was going to go is that really the the bet is almost like you have to bet on his contract desire versus his desire to leave the team and it does kind of suck too when the guy who is a concern ends up being rewarded because he's a concern I don't think Daryl's going to necessarily do that, right? But it reminds me of Shackleton when they get stuck in the Arctic and they've made it over to this island, but they know it's not sustainable. It's abandoned. There's not enough resources. You know, guys are getting sicker and sicker and they still have this boat that they feel like they can navigate to one of the islands that has an outpost. Incredible navigation skills on this thing. 22 feet, I think, ballast full of rocks, just trying to keep the thing from flipping over breaking off ice like the deadliest catch except they're not catching anything and there was this one guy who just sucked real real didn't understand positive vibes at all and the better option was to be in the boat instead of being left behind because if you were left behind there's a better chance you're going to die at least in the boat you'd feel like you were if you made it and they did sorry spoiler alert 
if they make it to the outpost that they're trying to head towards, you know, those guys would receive food and, you know, they, they would be in a better position sooner, but they end up taking the shitty guy with them because they didn't want to leave him behind, even though he sucked and he didn't work and he was just a malcontent the entire time. But they were like, if we leave him behind on the camp, he's such a bad vibes guy that it'll ruin the entire deal for them. So let's bring him with us. So he benefited from being an asshole the whole time. Unfortunately, that seems to happen a lot. Uh, the difference that I've met, referenced a couple different times here, Dame has the four years left, right? And he's picking one team, Miami. Weird that people had said that deal was done three weeks ago. Because I don't think it's done. I don't think that trade went through today. Uh, that's my issue with Dame. If Harden had three years left, I'd be more inclined uh, to probably trade him because of the history they've already talked about. But I got to wonder, like, would he actually come in out of shape and play like shit on purpose, like he has two other times, just to get out if Daryl doesn't change his mind. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for a guy that wants to have a contract. If Lillard were traded to a different team other than Miami, would he fake an injury? Would he not play? Would he risk losing $50 million a year? That doesn't seem like that's going to happen. And it kind of gets back to like the general theme of what I'm talking about here. Like, wait. It's easy to say and take a stand and, and say all these things that you're going to do and not going to do when you don't have to make that decision. Like you're not going to have to actually execute your decision for months here. If you want to do a tale of the tape on the arguments, uh, contract situation, Harden clearly has more of legit beef. Um, I'd say the current situation, roster-wise, arguments in Dame's favor. That one actually dings Harden a little bit. It's like you say you're about the right things, which you're not, but you sit, you say you are. Like your team's going to be good next year. It's not going to be the best in the East. Could be. I don't think it is right now. Your team's going to be good. Sure, the Clippers are going to be kind of good, but you care about LA and you care about the contract extension more than you do about winning. So that's in favor of Dame's argument. The rep of the two players, Dame. Uh, destination, it depends. Are both guys going to, in two months, say it's still only that one team? Sympathy? I'd actually say I'd have more sympathy for Harden if we find out that, in fact, there was a contract that he thought he was getting that was not brought back to him a year later, preceding this most recent offseason. So what if both don't get their number one option? Okay, will it mean anything? Will it mean that, wait a minute, you know, maybe player empowerment. Maybe it's not as powerful. No, I don't. Look, I'm not even ready to say that. It's the NBA, right? I'm not that crazy. So I'm not ready to come to that conclusion. But the beginning of this, I talked about a lesson. And I think the lesson can be the next time there's a trade demand, especially for a player that the team doesn't want to trade, especially with somebody with a lot of time left, that maybe we shouldn't trade that request or we shouldn't uh, treat that trade request as if it's imminent. As if it has to happen in a matter of days, especially when the NBA is not even open for business right now. And that's something I'm going to remind myself of the next time it happens. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call 
old school guy, probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. He is the chief content officer of the Action Network. He's also a former colleague and uh, I would say continues to be a friend. It's Chad Millman. It's good to catch up. I think that's a fair assessment. You can say we continue, we continue to be friends. I would say we have spoken more about non-sports stuff and career stuff and off-the-field stuff than we have about sports stuff. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, look, I'm, in, I'm impressed because I remember when all of us were trying to figure out like the next move, uh, you were positioned really well with your background in gambling, with your Vegas uh, years, and you kind of saw it. You saw it before a lot of people saw it. And you know, instead of going just straight content company, the broad scope of things, you were like, I'm going to start something else. And you called me about it. You started the Action Network. And I know there's been a few transactions since then. You're still with the company because you're valuable and uh, you were ahead of people on it. And I always admire people that do that. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, it would have been great if we could have had Ryan Rosillo come join Action Network. Uh, but listen, you're so freaking expensive and you're so popular and so famous. You know, we were just a small startup at the time. It just wasn't in the cards for us. But I just, you know, I knew, I knew that I was like, can I go all the way in on this now? But I, I look, I mean, we, you know, you and I have talked about it enough. Um, and I appreciate your, uh, overflowing comments there, but yeah, look, I, did you know, did you know that this would happen? Did you think, okay, Hey, look, here's what's going to happen legally here. This is the move because you had done so many different things at ESPN. I mean, hell, you were in charge of the magazine. You made your presence with .com. And for you to kind of go back to your roots, or maybe it was just a passion play for you. I'm just wondering how much of, of that was baked into the decision and, and how much vision you had on the future. It was all of it. Uh, I definitely believed it was going to be legal. I definitely believed it was the direction uh, that sports was going to go. I mean, remember, I had started, I'd written a book about this stuff 20 years ago, right? I wrote this book called The Odds in 1999. It came out in 2001. And I had lived in Vegas. I had tracked guys who'd been on sports for a living. I was deep in this world. And then when I was finished with the book and was at ESPN, I was writing columns about how professional bettors are thinking about the point spreads and what they're betting on and how bookmakers are setting lines and how that's impacting this shadow world that was worth hundreds of billions of dollars and really impacted how sports fans were thinking about sports. And in this window is when fantasy became as relevant as it, as it did. And Moneyball became such an ethos for sports fans, right? It really became analytically driven. And, and fans started to think opportunistically, not is my team going to win, but how do I win? And how do I make something out of everything I know, out of the democratization of data that is accessible on the internet? So it was becoming clear that sports betting was sort of at the 
at the tip of the sword on all of this. It was just a matter of time before it became legal and part of my coverage at ESPN when I was sort of moving up the executive ranks and my side hustle was forward-facing sports betting reporter. And um, I knew from the industry, like these are the court cases that are moving through and these are the ones that are getting attention. And there was a case that involved New Jersey. And in 2017, uh, we were both at ESPN and it was a hard time there. Like we were constantly firing people and you could feel the business contracting. And I know you felt a lot of this. I felt a lot of this. It felt like organizational chess, right? Like you were constantly trying to understand where do I fit in? What is my role? You know, the, the leadership was changing constantly. So you never knew just because you were in with one person doesn't mean you were going to be in with the next person. And it felt like you didn't control your own destiny. And that's right when uh, someone reached out to me, the churning group um, reached out to me. They wanted to start a sports betting business and a media company focused on this. And it's what I always wanted to do with ESPN. And I had all these memos that I was sending around and people just weren't into going all in on sports betting. And the churning folks wanted to do what I wanted to do, only so much bigger. They were so much smarter about it. And right in that moment, in that exact moment when they called me, uh, I remember about two weeks after my first conversation with them, this was in May of 2017, uh, I got an alert from ESPN. I was, in, I was in the city. I was in the Time Warner building in New York City. I'm going to alert from ESPN. The Supreme Court decides to hear the case that New Jersey had brought to legalize sports betting and overturn the federal sports betting ban. And this is the answer to your question. Uh, in that moment, I knew it was going to be legal. I knew that there was a two-thirds chance that it was either going to be, the Supreme Court would say, forget it, sports betting, the ban is legal, it can stay. New Jersey, which was filing the case on its own behalf to get sports betting legal in its state, can have it. And if New Jersey got it, every other state was going to follow the New Jersey roadmap, or they were going to overturn the ban completely. We launched in January of 2018. Sports betting became legal completely in May of 2018. So I felt it. I understood it from tracking it. I played the odds, for lack of a better term. And then we sold three years later. When you were going through, you know, writing the book, The Odds and everything, like I think Anytime, like I can always remember my phases of it where you might, if you get lucky in the beginning, you're like, I've, I've got this nail. Like, I can't believe people struggle with this. And then you hang around <laughs> for long enough and you go, okay, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, and then I think there's like kind of that next level. Like it's, it's fun. I actually do believe this and not just because FanDuel is a sponsor, but you know, there was an entertainment purpose of like throwing 25 bucks on a game that I didn't care about because now I really care, especially if that 25 bucks was important. And I always kind of thought of it as like a price to now feel completely different about the next three and a half hours of this Monday nighter, right? That's how I would, I would process it. And to me, it was always worth it because now I care way more. Um, but then there becomes this moment where you, like there's a, a much much less traveled path of, of the player who's like, okay, how does this actually work? Like, I've got to know what the real people 
are seeing here. You know, Van Pelt was really into it when we were doing the show. I had my own reasons for not being as into it back then because I felt like I was talking in front offices all the time. And I was like, I just don't, there was still a stigma of it. I was like, I just don't know that I feel right about going like, hey, the Pistons are in a bad place right now. Like, you know, because I just, I didn't want to ever have that conversation. Now, like the stigma was gone overnight, by the way. Um, but what did you learn in, maybe it was a, a selfish quest of you going like, how do the people who really understand this, how do they see this world? Yeah, I actually did it completely opposite. I knew nothing about this world. So when I started The Odds, it started because I had written a story for ESPN Magazine where I was working about the guys in Vegas. Remember, this is before everybody was betting online. This is late 90s. It was just starting to become a thing. The guys in Vegas were really the ones who set the tone for the uh, point spreads. And they were disseminated from there throughout the rest of the world. Then they were disseminated into the online outfits that were starting to pop up in the off, what we call the offshore and like Costa Rica. And so I focused on the bookmaker at the Stardust Hotel for this story who was setting the point spread for the NCAA tournament and just wrote about how this guy sort of was the first domino to fall in this massive industry. And it was one dude, two dudes sitting in a back room at the Stardust Hotel. And what would happen is the professional betters in college basketball, and and you you sort of, you downplay a little bit how much you know about this, because I know when we spoke about this years ago, I know you didn't want to get into it because of what you said, but like you and Scott, like you guys were the best show to go on because you knew it so well. Like you were not sort of schmucks who didn't understand the language. And professional bettors would come and bet these point spreads. And that's how these things got beaten into shape. And then everybody picked them up, right? So I just thought that was fascinating. And I thought their lives were fascinating. And like, I'm a romantic, right? So I love the language. I love the psychology. I love the narrative. I love the math. I could care less about the betting. It wasn't what I got into it for. And I, when I was in Vegas for those six months, I made like, five bets the entire time I was out there because it was something that just scared me so much, right? And and one of the bigger bets I made, I bet I bet like 300 bucks during March Madness at the end of my run there. And I bet on, I think it was Utah State to cover against UConn, like plus nine. And I think Rick Mahorn's nephew hit a three-pointer with no time left to turn the game from Utah State being down by 11 to losing by eight. I won the bet. I was so sick to my stomach. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. I never want to do it again. And the guy who I was writing about, this guy, Alan Boston, you know, who at the time was the best college basketball better in the world, he was betting millions of dollars a day. And he won about $100,000 on that game. He casually picked up the phone and just put it back in play. And I'm like, these guys are playing a different level. But it was after that, that I sort of became consumed with that world. And I still wouldn't say like, I'm an amazing better, right? And I know the industry really well. I know the keys to pick up on. I know when there is an advantage in a game, in a point spread. I know when, I know you like to talk about fading the public. I know when to fade the public. Um, but I work with guys. I talk to guys who are betting tens of thousands of dollars on a game. Like, that's not me. That's never going to be me. My risk comes in, uh, comes in a lot of different ways. 
I feel really good about what I know, but I am not that comfortable betting huge, huge, huge amounts of money. Yeah, that was Scott's fade the public thing. And then I, the big joke with me is I basically always would end up around 500 whenever we would do it. And then this past year is one of the worst years I've had because I think I was being too specific and I was going to the Action Network and looking for the public money. But yeah. the public money versus the number of wagers publicly are two different things. And then I thought like, wait, if I'm trying to like thread this needle, I can't just pick one. I've got to pick like three and hope I'm going two for three more often than I'm going one for three on it. Uh, you put those numbers up for a very specific reason. And some people are completely married to that theory. It just feels awful when you're always going to be betting on the worst teams in the NFL every week when you go with that. Um, why is that number so important, though? Why why is that such a strong philosophy for so many gamblers? It is it is truly disgusting. I talk about this uh, all the time with the guys at Action and on my podcast. Like, what are we going to do that is so disgusting and so uncomfortable? And it just works, right? You are constantly looking at the teams that really make you sick. And the problem here that a lot of people don't understand is that the majority of money that comes in that, bet, that bookmakers are looking at is from people who don't know anything. They are completely square. That is what they are called in the industry. They are called squares. And they come in, they'll bet $10, $20, $100, $500, whatever it is. But they bet on emotion. They bet on their favorite team. They like to bet on the favorite. So the money to be made, if you're betting on the NFL, is usually fading the public, is usually betting on the bad teams, it's betting on underdogs, it's doing things that constantly make you uncomfortable. It's betting on the Texans when they're double-digit dogs against the Jaguars at some point during this season. And the Texans, by the way, consistently sort of last year kept your kept your kept the better's heart in their throat because they would find a way to sort of sneak down the field and get that backdoor cover. We saw last year the Chiefs and the Broncos, right? The Chiefs were double-digit favorites against the Broncos late in the year. The Broncos were a pitiful, pitiful team. The Chiefs are up by like 27 points. I had the Broncos in that game. And of course the Broncos come back because the NFL, the patterns are so predictable. So what you're looking for in those numbers, it's important to see what the public is doing. And the public is sort of where the tickets are. So you get a lot of tickets, like I said, $10, $20, $30, right? That's the ticket percentage. The money percentage is where you are getting a significant amount of professional action. And so when we put those two in the app, uh, in the Action Network app, that's what you're sort of trying to determine is where's the professional money going to be? That's the side that I want to be on. Now, whenever I, I see like, all right, just me watching, right? Because I just think about it. I'll think about it and I'll go, okay, the bubble. Nobody's playing any defense. And you're like, wait, okay, is there a play here? The guys that know are already on it and they're yes. not telling anybody, right? Yeah. I, I love that that exists, even if I can't understand. Because like, I think I know a lot about the NBA. But I don't know enough or I don't think in a way where I'd go, oh, wait, bubble, no crowds, apathetic, <laughs> overs, overs all day until they get the number right. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Here's the thing that's hard about the NBA. And here's the thing that's hard about the NFL. 
And it's very specific. And it's also for college basketball and, and college football. And it's called getting the best of the number. And so bettors will always talk about you want to bet a, you might feel great about overs in the NBA during the bubble. But if you feel great about overs and a line opens at 215 and a half and you missed it and now you're betting it at 217 and a half, inevitably it's going to land at 216. Like it just is, right? And you're going to lose your bet or it's going to land at 217. You will have been right. All of your theories will have been right, but you didn't get the best of the number. And that's what makes gambling so hard. And you talk about, you know, winning at 50%. Dude, you win 53% of the time and you are a massively globally successful better. That is how people make their money. That is the very narrow margin in betting. 53% of the time. It is a stunningly small percentage. It means that you are right as a better 5.3 times out of 10. Now think about this. As, a, as an executive at ESPN, my gift, my superpower was supposed to be my ability to make the right decision almost every single time. Like when you are moving up the ladder, that is how you are judged. You, you can't be judged on, you know, how good was my show today, right? You're only judged on how did I manage this situation? Did I make the right decision? At ESPN, if you said to someone, you are making the right decision only five and a half times out of 10, they would think they're failing. But in reality, that is astounding to be able to make the right decision five and a half times out of 10. You should be rewarded for that. Because if that in that case, like betters who are doing this with huge amounts of money at stake, they are the best in the world at that. So I always feel really good if I'm at 53%. I feel fantastic as an executive at action. If I'm making the right decision 50% at a time, I'm brilliant. All right, so let's get to it then. Um, do you like to play the futures? Do you like to play them for value? Do you, are yes. you looking at that middle pack going, this is where I want to put my money. I'm not messing with the favorites and I'm not putting down $100 to win 18 grand if the Texans win it all. So yes to the first part, a little bit yes and no to the second part. I generally, if I'm looking at futures, I'm looking at 20 to 40 to one. And I, when I'm doing that, it's, it's starting from February until we get into training camp. There are always caveats, right? Like, even though I'm from Chicago, I love the Bears. When the futures markets opened after the Super Bowl, I, I was looking at the, the numbers. The Bears were 100 to one, all right? Like, I knew the Bears had Justin Fields. I knew they had the number one pick. I knew they had more salary cap than anybody. And I know they have one of the youngest rosters. So even though I'm a homer, and of course I love the Bears, at 100 to one, of course I'm going to play that. That's ridiculous. It's like I had friends last year playing the Jags at 100 to one because you know it's not going to happen. But you also know the number is about twice as big as it should be. So the Bears, almost immediately, I got them at 100 to one. They're now at about 50 to 60 to one, right? Because everybody started seeing the same thing. So you are looking for value, but I tend to think about who can I get in that 20 to 40 range. So, and inevitably, 
I'm a sucker for the Ravens, right? The Ravens right now are at about 18 to one. I'm always a sucker for the Ravens. I love Harbaugh. I love Lamar Jackson. I love the tools that they have put around Lamar Jackson for the first time in, it seems like, his entire career. Their defense is always amazing. Roquan Smith, like the fact the Bears decided he couldn't anchor their defense is actually heartbreaking to me because the Ravens deciding he was so good, they would give him that contract extension and build the defense around him. They're as good at determining what is great at building a defense as anybody. So um, I will be high on the Ravens this year in all markets. Um, And I think the Dolphins are interesting. I think there's still some moves potentially to be made. Um, But I'm not looking at anything. I'm not looking at the Chiefs. I'm not looking at the Bengals. I'm not looking at the Eagles. I'm not looking at the Bills. Like Those are the teams that you want to ignore. And you want to think about, okay, when the season starts, who are the Bengals playing early in the year? Will they lose a couple of those games? And then who are they playing later in the year? How is their schedule going to play out? You kind of want to hold your powder right now until the season starts if you only want to play the bigger teams. Because you might get an opportunity to bet some of these teams at longer odds if they lose a few games early um, and they don't pick up steam until later in the year. Um, are you thinking of any NFC play where, okay, the Eagles are the best team, but you look at the lack of quarterback depth in that conference, it may not have ever had this big of a gap between quarterback talent and the AFC and the NFC in my lifetime. I don't know yep. when I would have to reference it where you're going, it's not so much that I love the team. I just love the path where if you go through the odds on FanDuel right now, um, I would say, although San Francisco's in there at 10 to one. Like the next best odds for an NFC team. I don't know the last time we've said this is Detroit at 22 to one. I know. That's what's freaky, right? If you look at the odds overall, uh, and I think I did this exercise, I can do it with you right now looking at FanDuel. It's like seven of the top 10 teams are all AFC and it's entirely quarterback dependent. And if you look at the NFC, that is, by the way, that is the betting story of the offseason, is the quarterback, quarterback discrepancy between the AFC and the NFC. Name the best quarterback in the NFC right now. Um, I, don't, I mean, I know I'm supposed to say Jalen Hurts. Uh, I don't know that that's the slam dunk that everybody thinks it is. I'd have to see like another year of him. Um, after the Tennessee game, I was like, okay, I'm in, you know, all the doubts feel like I'm not worried about it. But if I'm going to say like, just straight up, he's the best quarterback in the NFC, I'd like to see it another year. But then who am I going to pick Dak? I'm not picking Jared Goff. Right. I'm not picking Kirk Cousins. Um, dude, I guess it is Jalen Hurts. It's Jalen Hurts. Yeah, and you can't, it it's, it's astonishing, right? Because another reason why... I got onto the Bears early is because I thought about their path in the division. Like, am I convinced that the Lions won't regress because there's so much love for the Lions that you almost have to fade them at this point? Am Am I a buyer on Jordan Love? Do I believe that the Vikings, who had a miraculous season of winning one score games and Kirk Cousins, doing what he did on a consistent basis or 
Justin Jefferson making miraculous catches, is that going to happen again? Right? Like these teams, it's, it, it, is it a Brock Purdy show in San Francisco? Can he recover? Is Matthew Stafford going to come back? By the way, if Matthew Stafford plays, I'm buying the Rams. Like they are so undervalued in the division. Their season win total is so low. How are you not thinking about the Rams? But I'm looking at, I'm looking at the same thing you are right now in the FanDuel odds. Right now, to win the Super Bowl, you have Kansas City, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Cincy, San Francisco, uh, Dallas. By the way, what a compliment to Shanahan. They have the fifth best odds. Well, listen, I, I will tell you right now. I'll tell you right now. There are probably five coaches in the NFL that betters take seriously when it comes to the point spread, right? Like people that they actually believe have an impact on the point spread. And it, sometimes it's overall, sometimes it's in very specific spots. But Bill Belichick is going to be one of those guys. John Harbaugh is going to be one of those guys. Kyle Shanahan is going to be one of those guys. Mike Vrabel is one of those guys. Mike Tomlin is one of those guys. There are certain coaches that uh, get a lot of respect from betters because they consistently win in spots where they aren't supposed to win. They do the miraculous thing as underdogs. You, you don't want to bet against Mike Vrabel and the Tennessee Titans when they're underdogs. You don't want to bet against Mike Tomlin. By the way, we're talking about week one, right? Pittsburgh is a three-point underdog at home against San Francisco. That's how much respect Shanahan gets. We don't know who the guy's quarterback is going to be, but people are so convinced he's a genius. He's a three-point favorite on the road with TJ Watt healthy against a Steelers team that is on the make. Another team that I love, love for next year. Uh, you know, I was looking at some of the win totals here. Like Tampa's at six and a half. And you go, okay, it was such a weird year last year. Um, and now Brady's not there. So you're like, wait, is that number too high? But yes. just with the way... Oh, so you think it's an under. Oh, I totally think it's an under. Yeah, I think that team is going to be in complete rebuilding mode. It's a... it's an, it, The Tom Brady era is so over. Uh, yeah, I would, I would not be a buyer on that team uh, in, in any single way. Not even close. Because uh, when you brought up the Rams and I was looking through the NFC teams, I'm like, who's got a, what feels like a low number? Um, and, and again, Tampa was so one-dimensional last year. But I don't think the roster is like this. I don't, I don't look at their roster and go like, oh, this is this terrible roster devoid of any NFL talent because it, it just isn't. But then when you spin it back to the Rams, like there's only, they're with Vegas and Washington. And then after that, there's only four teams with worse Super Bowl ads odds in the Rams. Sorry, do, yeah. do you have any do you have any other Rams type teams there? It sounds like the Bears for you as a future. It sounds like a Bears, what, over under six and a half or is it seven and a half? The Bears might have prepped up. It's seven and a half, but the the over is minus one twenty two on FanDuel right now. I'd still buy it. Like it's it's a little bit more juice than you'd normally want to pay, but I'm a huge buyer on the Bears. Again, take it with a grain of salt. Um, I'd also like, I'd be betting the Jaguars, uh, they're over, that's minus 150. That's a huge price to pay. But you got to think about, they're playing in a division that now has 
potentially three rookie quarterbacks if Will Levis ends up getting any time as a Titans quarterback. So that's why it's juiced to such a high number. I will tell you right now, the one team that I'm fading, I'm going to fade like my life depends on it, the New York J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. I'm fading them in every way that I possibly can. I'm scrolling here. It's nine and a half. Nine and a half. And I believe the Jets under nine and a half right now, it's at uh, plus 100. So it's basically even money. You're not paying any commission to bet the Jets under nine and a half. Because Aaron Rodgers, you know what QBR last year was? I know it was terrible. Um, it was terrible. Was it in the high it, 30s? High 30s. Uh, you know some other quarterbacks who had comparable QBRs to Aaron Rodgers last year? I'll yeah, I mean, it's, it's always the worst guys. Like when you're it's, in the 30s, it's, it's bad. It's Zach Wilson, Mike White, Joe now Flacco. Now they're friends. Yeah, right? And so, like, Aaron Rodgers had two incredible MVP years doing exactly what Matt LaFleur told him to do. Before that, he was in a significant downward spiral. So are we going to be getting Tom Brady going to the Bucs? I'm not a buyer in that theory. I'm also not a buyer that the Jets, all of a sudden, because they have Aaron Rodgers, are going to be better than the Buffalo Bills, are going to be better than the Miami Dolphins. I'm, I'm not entirely sure they're going to be better than the New England Patriots, who, by the way, had one of the best defensive lines in football and can only be better offensively after the tragedy of last season's coaching debacle. So they might not even be the best team in their division, yet they're going to win 10 games. This just feels, when we talk about fading the public, this is when you're fading the public. The Jets number is exploding because they are one of the biggest liabilities in season win totals for the books. I always love when the number from Vegas reflects like my emotion about a team or about a season. Because like when you look at Minnesota, who the reason this number is even this good for them at 35 to one for the Super Bowl is just because of the NFC. Where yeah. when you watched them last year, you went, This team isn't good. I know what they're doing. I know the comebacks. It's an incredible run. I'm I'm so not afraid of this team. But then if you were the Giants. And you're going, like, do they beat anybody good? And their number's even worse at 45 to 1. And they win that playoff game. But then you're like, yeah, but because they kind of won the playoff game against the other team that I don't really believe in. It reminds me a lot of this Miami Heat run where I ended up being incredibly wrong until they ran out of time to, to, be, to make us all wrong again. But every time I'd watch them, and I, I'm a big roster guy, and I'd see the number come out from Vegas. I was like, yeah, right. We're on the same page. And then both Vegas and I would be wrong about Miami until, of course, the NBA Finals. Uh, but I always, I always will look at that. I'll be like, oh, wait, who's the team last year that, that did well, that people kind of like talked themselves into? It's the Tebow phenomenon. Tebow would win the game. And on Monday, we'd all have the talk shows. And it got really tough after like six or seven weird games where they won again where you couldn't come in on Monday being like, I still think he isn't good. <laughs> right. You, you had guys hard, just giving up. It's hard, it's hard to ignore what you're seeing in front of you. 
And, but that's also what betters do, right? And it's, a lot of betters don't watch the games. A lot of betters will, after it's over, they'll look at the box scores and then they'll watch the all 22s and they'll see if they can match up sort of significant moments in the game that impacted how the game turned out, but aren't impacting how they feel about a team going forward. And so you have to look at sort of a, when you're betting on, a, on the NFL specifically, you almost have to look at it the way coaches do, right? They think about the season in quadrants of four, right? So when it was a 16-game season, it was four, 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 four. And how is your team improving? How are you winning those quadrants of four? Better think about it the same way. They're like, all right, what has this team done in the past four weeks? Who have they played? How are they progressing? What do they have coming up? How is that going to mentally impact them? And they take all of that when they're when they're managing their bets and what they're going to do in the following week. And then they have to sort of pour into that stew, the seasoning of, okay, are they overvalued this week because they had a great comeback against a good team? Or is the good team undervalued because they lost the game they shouldn't have lost and now they're going on the road and the public thinks, oh, they're not as good as we thought. So now the number isn't as big. It's a lot of sort of mental gymnastics and and math that goes on. And what's interesting is these guys do it almost instinctively. Like, I can, honestly, I can look at the, the week two spreads off of week one and immediately know, without having to do any research, without having to talk to anybody, immediately know the games I'm going to want to bet because of what happened in week one. Weeks one and two are actually two of the more fun weeks to bet um, in the NFL season. And then it gets a little tricky, but early in the season, it's fun to sort of play against what the public is overreacting to. On top of all of this in your background, um, being in charge of ESPN, the magazine, and I, I know ESPN, obviously very public, another round of uh, layoffs. And, you know, a few of the names are really, really close friends. I mean, the whole reason I even got a job at ESPN was because of Todd McShay. And, you know, I know going back to our conversations like in 17, because there were layoffs then and losing friends. And, and I think to be fair to ESPN too, which I, I think is always important because I think sometimes I can... I can, you know, tell a story where it's not the most glowing, uh, but that's my own personal experience is that, you know, this, this model just keeps changing. It keeps changing over and over again. I remember even talking with Bill, like when he was gone and I was still there, he's like, I think it's a live rights company now. I just, I just think that it is. And I don't really blame him. You know, I don't really blame him on the live rights part of it and making that the number one important thing. And with the way the costs keep going up, you're going to have to figure out a way to move the, the numbers around, even if we both know how much it sucks. But like knowing that you were part of something, I remember ordering the first ESP in the mag, like being excited about my subscription, being excited about it, sitting. I still like physically having it in my hand and reading. Um, I know there can be like a real writer's thing where it can turn into like, oh, they don't get it. And they don't. And I, I don't think that's what your answer is going to be. But what's it been like for you having a front row seat and then watching it from further away, seeing a company that we both were you know, really proud of being part of? Well, it, it's it runs the gamut, right? I actually I, I loved my experience at ESPN. I still have great friends there. I think there are incredibly smart people there. I do agree with what you just said and what Bill has said in the past. Like, it's a rights company, and that is what, in theory, is supposed to drive the direct the direct to consumer product. 
Um, it's not going to be sort of the shoulder programming of studio shows or anything else. No one's going to pay for that. They're going to pay to see games. And the challenge ESPN had and what made them brilliant 12, 13, 14 years ago is going in on the live rights and making this cable subscription so valuable that none of the cable companies could get rid of it. It made ESPN essentially a utility right? No different than the electric company. Like you had to have ESPN if you wanted to watch any live event. But the competition has become so incredible and the money the other companies have is just so much bigger. It's left it sort of as a very small player. And it's hard to say that, but it's a smaller player compared to the people who have all the money that, could, that are, they are competing against. Um, but thinking about magazines and and the impact it had, like, I loved working at the magazine. I still say to my wife all the time, like, being editor-in-chief of the magazine, it's as good a job as there could ever be. Like, you are, every two weeks, you're in the trenches, putting out a singular product. Every picture matters, every headline matters, every word gets poured over. Um, it's a manufacturing business. You can't undo what's done. And so you really think about what the cover, what kind of impact the cover can have. You're planning stories three, four, five months in advance. And that's a real investment, right? You're, the, the money that you put into that, you have to think hard, is it going to be worth something that stays on a page and is tangible and lasts sort of in a physical form? That's fantastic. But I, I'm also... I'm not a Luddite and I'm not overly nostalgic. You know, I was uh, in an airport, in an airport on, I guess, on Saturday and walking through a newsstand and seeing how there were no magazines underneath the labels of all the magazines. Like they have the banner that runs across like the top is decoration that has Vogue or Bizarre or Time. They don't have any of those magazines on newsstands. There was like one thin Vanity Fair and I picked it out. I read it for a second and I'm like, I don't need it. Like I have two magazine subscriptions and I worked in magazines for close to 25 years and I love magazines. It's all I ever wanted to do, but they're not vital to my media consumption. And um, it's kind of sad, but I don't lose sleep over it. Yeah, I remember like going through, you know, 20 years ago being like, ooh, this is a new subscription offer. And like, I'll get these four magazines and I would read them, you know, I would read them. And the idea of like getting four magazine subscriptions now and going like, would I, would I actually read these things or would I just have them stack up? Cause I feel bad about throwing them out because I haven't read them. And it's like, hey, I know what the solution is. Don't get it, uh, which yeah. sucks because I was certainly one of those guys. Last thought here. Because you mentioned the moment of like every picture, every headline, every word. And I'd had something earlier this year where I was working with somebody on an edit of something. And I just said, hey, we could just keep editing. We could. We could just keep changing words around. We could keep changing this sentence and then change that. We could fucking change this forever if we want to. Um, and then it felt like we were for a while. Yeah. But uh, it's kind of great that you have a deadline with a magazine. Because this was non-deadline stuff, yeah. knowing that, yeah, right, sure, 
Like you almost had to accept that it's never going to be perfect in the way you want it to be perfect. And if that's your goal, you can't have that job. No, we, you know, you can't let perfect be the enemy of good. And you know that there's going to be some stuff that it's just a profile, man. Like it's not <laughs> going to win a Pulitzer. It, it, we just don't want to get sued. We want it to entertain people. And then there are the stories that you know are going to be magical. And, you know, you do want to like wring every ounce of blood out of that story. And you do want to stay up until four in the morning to make sure it's perfect and you are nervous when you press send. But a lot of times, you know, we're just making shoots and you're just trying to put the thing out so it gets into the inboxes so we keep getting the money so we can go and do it again. Uh, um, and that's that's probably 80% of it. And then 20% of the time, you're hoping to, you know, catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah, it's funny though, because I can sit here and I go, I miss it. I miss it all. And I totally get it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not a I miss it and what went wrong. Because that's the part where I'll push back, even if it's something that I'm critical of. There'll be other criticisms where I go, look, well, you're not being realistic. You're not being realistic. Because I think there are times look, I, where, go ahead, go ahead. No, no. I, I remember, look, I remember the writing was on the wall for magazines throughout, like from 2008 through say, all of the 2010s, right? And I became editor-in-chief of the magazine in 2011. And I remember, in, and I loved it. It was so much fun. We moved the magazine from New York to Bristol. It was, it was such a fire drill. 70% of the staff left. Like We didn't know what we were doing. And we were changing the wheels on the truck as, as it was moving. And it was amazing, right? But you also knew like revenue was going down. And it was harder to sell. And even if it was a stickier product and pe more people who bought it, uh, they had higher salaries, the demographics were better than online. It's just everything was going online. And I remember saying to my bosses at the time, John Kozner or John Skipper, like, I love the magazine, but like, I can't just be doing the magazine because I'm worried you guys are going to shut it down. And like, we need to figure out what we're doing for all of us to move into the next phase. And that's when I became editor-in-chief of the magazine and ESPN.com. And I was always afraid that I was going to have to be the editor who shut down the magazine and um, felt, felt like uh, really anxious about that for a couple of years because it's a, you don't want to be the person who's presiding over the end. Well, uh, you have great instincts. And we both know it works <laughs> out for you. <laughs> uh, let's do this again when the season gets cranking, all right? I'd love to, brother. Thanks for having me. It's good to see all you. All right. There you go. Chad Millman. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, before we introduce our guest here, I want to give a little backstory. I remember 2002, uh, sitting in a living room with my father, Spike TV, and I was like, this Lambo stuff's the next big thing. I'm like, I'm in. I can't, I can't wait <laughs> to see the ads and Mason Gordon, the founder, the inventor and uh, slam ball is back. 
So uh, he joins us now. What's up, man? Ryan, Slamball is back, baby. I'm so excited. I'm sorry I'm so caffeinated so early in the morning, but uh, I'm on the ringer and I can't believe it. This is so cool. Yeah, look, uh, this is, I just remember that moment so well because, you know, we weren't used to as many new options as we have now. And, you know, to say like, okay, is this how, like, what is the sustainability of this sport? But before we get kind of like into that story, that part of the story, uh, just, just take us back to the beginning because I, I know your story, but share it with the audience of like who you are, how this happened, inventing this thing, and then actually getting it on TV in 2002. Yeah, the the really the formative thing with Slam Ball was that I stole my mom's credit card to watch the first UFC. Like, what are we on? UFC 293 or something like that. I'm talking about UFC 1. And I watched the very first UFC and they took all these different fighting styles and they blended them together into something that young people absolutely gravitated to. And when I saw that, this, this thought started in my head, which was, I'm not a martial artist. I'm a team sports guy. And could I take the best elements of basketball, football, hockey, blend them all together into something that actually worked and was actually functional? Um, and that was the first kind of ideas for slam ball. And uh, I remember in 2000, I sketched out the first thing on a napkin on, on what the slam ball court would look like. And I tried to combine all my passions, all these different team sports, the physicality of football, the fluidity and athleticism of basketball, and then the kind of over-the-top nature of video games because I played, and here's a blast from the past for you, NFL Blitz and NBA Jam. And I was like, do those things fit together somehow? And that was really kind of the beginning ideas of it. And then I had it down on paper. Wow. Okay. So you played basketball, obviously, though, growing up too, right? Yeah, I was a gym rat. Um, people ask me all the time, did you invent slam ball because you couldn't dunk as like a white guy power fantasy? And I was always, and th th I think that's hilarious. No, I, I knew enough about dunking and I loved dunking. I was the guy that would like drive two hours away from my house to play in a game where nobody knew me so I could sneak in another couple dunks. So I knew enough about dunking and the mechanics of it that I could build a whole sport around it. So what did it, <laughs> what were the moments between like sketching this out and thinking yeah. of it to actually getting it on TV? I, the trial and error of that. And I know there's a bit of a backstory in like this warehouse where you were trying to figure out just the technical part of that. What What was that like and how long did that take? Yeah, originally it was kind of a bad idea. Uh, it, <laughs> I, it was fight club basketball, right? I had this notion that if you played uh, if you played a new sport on a gymnastic spring floor, it would make you jump really high because I would watch Simone Biles type athletes, you know, do round off back handsprings and then jump like bounce like 15 feet in the air. So I was like, that's what everybody's going to be able to jump like that. So I actually built the thing and invited all my friends down that could had 40 inch verticals and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, this is going to be amazing. And they went to jump off the spring floor off two feet and it collapsed underneath them. So of course they only got about 
16 feet off the ground, it's like the coefficient of restitution, right? If the floor is falling away as you're pushing off of it, you don't get any vertical. So I was about just about sitting down, about to cry. And then one of my buddies took off from one off of one foot and his whole head was over the rim. And the, and the concept was, oh, okay, I get it. I need somebody to jump off the spring floor off one foot, land in something else in two feet and go to the rim. And that's where the competition level spring beds came into place. We went and got these Olympic grade trampolines and we built them right into the floor. And that's really where the magic started to happen. Um, and the hardest part of this whole thing, Ryan, was getting basketball and football players to be able to play the same sport together because the football guys would pancake the basketball players and the basketball players would just want to fight. So we were constantly breaking up fights. And that was the biggest challenge in the beginning was getting them to blend together. Now, you also, you changed the pattern, right, of the trampolines because originally you felt yeah. like there was like no chance for anybody on defense, right? It was, it was kind of a it was kind of a disaster when I first built it because I'm not an engineer. I had all these like highfalutin ideas, but then I was the one actually building this thing with like hammers and and uh, and nails and stuff like that. So uh, we had this horrible particle board from Home Depot. Guys were getting splinters all up and down their arm, and one guy actually fell through the floor on my first court. So it was really bad, but it was just cool enough that we were able to get uh, backing to do the the full court in East LA. And that's really where slam ball was born. Um, the football guys were, were trucking the basketball guys. It was really a problem. So I like checked myself into the game and I grabbed the football guys, the one, the one guy everybody had a problem with. And I was like, hey man, I want you to hit me as hard as you can, like harder than you've hit anybody in your life. And I want you to make sure everybody sees it. And when he hit me, from about 25 feet away and I didn't see him coming. I cracked like three ribs, but I got back up and I kept playing and the basketball guys were like, oh, okay, if he can do it and he's cutting our checks, we can do it. So that's really where things started, started going crazy. Now, was the belief that you were always going to be playing in the league if it ever got off the ground? No, no, I didn't want to. Like, you know, I, I wanted to be Dana White with hair. Uh, that was that was my concept. And uh, and but there was this thing where if I was out there, there was kind of this I was kind of the glue of the social contract. Right. Um, because everyone wanted to hit me like visualize your boss right now, Ryan, and then imagine like running from 25 feet away and being able to knock him over the boards into the team box. And I have that piece of video. Like that was some weird galvanizing thing that all the athletes uh, could just kind of rally around that notion that if I was out there, if I was playing a rough and tumble sport and I was getting it worse than anybody and I've got, I've got the video to prove it, um, you know, then, then, the, then everybody was buying in. Uh, but but I wasn't the kind of athlete that some of these guys were. I was good. I was good enough uh, to be able to go out there and do a, a few cool things. But mostly I'm just getting my career highlight reel is me getting beat up by bigger, stronger people. You know, as you talk about this, I think the speed of evolution of something that's new is is amazing. And I, like, seriously, I'm just thinking about like being a little kid and being outside, having nothing to do and then inventing some kind of game. And yeah. then 
like after a day of it, somebody else would figure out a better way to do what you're doing. And then you're like, oh my God, we're like at, at rapid speed here of, of whatever this concept that we have of like figuring out. Cause we had it like our starting point was zero. And right. in all the sports that we talk about all the time, like that pace can't be the same because they've been playing these sports for decades. But I'd imagine the very beginning of slam ball, the stuff happening out at East LA, like there would be something maybe every week or maybe every day where you'd see, a, especially these athletes going, wait, if I do it this way, like what were those moments like in the beginning? Uh, there's a great story about that. So it's, it's, it was light speed and you're absolutely right. Once we got the football and basketball guys to blend together, magic really started to happen on the court. You had, cause we had this huge vertical canvas. The slam ball court gets you up to 18 feet off the floor. So you're talking about all this creative space to express yourself as an athlete. And so the guys really started and, and, and because they come from different backgrounds, they had different ways to impact the sport. We had guys that had this sort of daredevil Travis Pastrana type attitude that were th throwing flip dunks on people, didn't care what happened. They just wanted to pull it off and like check the box. Right. But what was cool is that a couple of people walked in off the street and we didn't really want to ask them to leave. So we just kind of let them hang out and then they left and then they came back with like five friends the next day. So within a week, organically, we had hundreds of people in this warehouse watching uh, slam ball get developed in real time. And it was somehow very entertaining. And they're selling churros and bootleg slam ball merchandise. And that was, that was really an amazing thing to see. And my co-founder and partner, Mike Tolan, who had some shows on cable television, invited some people down uh, and they were just blown away by the reaction of the crowd. The, the, core, the action on the court was intermittently spectacular, but also kind of janky. But the reaction for the, from the crowd was unbelievable. And that's what started this social contract. Slam Ball is a social contract with the audience that, hey, if you stick with us for a few minutes, something incredible is going to happen. And that's the exact same mechanism that people have while scrolling through social media. So we think that there's something really special about what we've got to offer on ESPN come Friday night. Okay, so... And for those that don't know your full scope, like Redeem Team, you're a producer as well, a director. Uh, you did the Mellow Doc as well. That's right. Um, so you understand how hard it is to get anyone to say yes to something creatively. Okay? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so what was the yes moment from Spike TV going, hey, Mason, we're in. We're, we're putting this on TV. Yeah. So, you know, they were launching Spike TV as the network for men. And it's funny because Spike TV has become this sort of amazing thing that people remember as having like this um, incredible lineup of cool stuff. And they looked at this and they were like, slam ball, that's our sport. Uh, and they wanted to make it, you know, their signature sport. They wanted to tick that box. Right. And what was amazing about rolling it out on Spike TV is the sport was only a few mo months old. We were, and we could, didn't have access to the slam ball court. So we were playing the game in our head and trying to figure out everything that when we finally did get the court with just a few weeks to put it together before a national television debut, we had to have it all right. We had to do, I guess what they, how they train AI now and do millions and millions of 
of kind of permutations in our head so that we'd be ready for this very, very short window. And we were able to put a, a pretty amazing product in front of people on Spike TV. And back then, millions and millions of people sought out Slam Ball on late night, Spike TV, and we pressed a button in their hearts and minds that never really got unpressed. So what happened? Because then it was it was gone. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. People accepted Slam Ball as a real sport, which it was, and a real league, which it was not. We were a television show. We'd get all the teams together. We would film all the games and we'd release the games three months later. That is no way to build a sport. Sports have to be immediate. Sports have to be engageable. And we were this like canned product. And, and because of that, we didn't really have the immediacy with it. Uh, so, so we couldn't compete with in the economics of cable television because law and order rerun would do a law and order rerun would do a better number, right? So that's how you, that's how you get by in, in, in cable television. So we did two series on uh, Spike TV, and then we thought like, oh. We, you know, we'll, we don't want to do, we don't want to make this like wrestling. We don't want to make this fake. We don't want to make it a entertainment product just to stay on the air. We're sports guys. Mike Tolan and I are sports guys. So we figured, Hey, let's go get the rights back. And then we'll, we'll, we'll put it on a, a sports channel. And we thought that would take like six months and it ended up taking like five years to get the rights, the rights back. And when we did get the rights back, there were people waiting to partner with us. So how does the, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to get into your bank statements here, but like, how do the finances of that work? I imagine there's a bit of a windfall when the Spike TV part of it happens, but then whatever, whatever happens after that to get the rights back. Like, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm just asking probably because of the audience are like, wait, if you founded this thing and then it got on TV, but it got on TV early, like, I don't know. I mean, what are the finances of it? Yeah, the, the finances were not pretty. Cable television was not uh, a very lucrative endeavor back in the day. So I actually did a calculation one time, and I think I've, I've worked for uh, I've, all the hours I put into Slam Ball is like 33 cents an hour or something like that. So, uh, and, and we're talking about the long term. People ask all the time, like, you know, how do I create my own sport? And I tell them, listen, if you can do anything else with your life, and be happy do that because this is not this is not uh you know for the faint of heart this is about banging your head against a brick wall not for a week not for a year in this case decades and it's taken us decades to get to where it's live bettable engageable and that was our vision right from the start okay so then as you mentioned um this friday on espn friday night 7 p.m. Eastern time. Slam ball is back, baby. And we're on ESPN, the mothership, the worldwide leader of sports. Uh, we couldn't be happier. You know, Ryan, we went out to the capital markets and found that people were really, really interested in this thing. Um, and we were oversubscribed in just a handful of months. And for that to happen, we was really put a lot of wind in our sails. We what we didn't expect to happen is that we went out to all the broadcasters and uh, you know, we were like, hey man, slam ball's cool. Somebody's gonna give this thing a shot, right? But what we didn't expect is to get offers from every single sports broadcaster. Every single one made an offer, and the top ones 
improve their offer three and four times over. So we were able to call our partner, our broadcast partner on Slamball, which was a dream. And you know, to be able to say that Slamball is on ESPN, that is a conversation ender with respect to, is this a legitimate sport? Uh, is it worthy of, of live broadcast coverage? Is it worthy of blog coverage? And is it worthy of podcast coverage? All that is in our rearview mirror, and we can just focus on giving people what they always accepted slam ball as, which is a legitimate sport, legitimate league. What was it like going through the tryouts versus when you were actually playing 20 years ago? The tryouts for slam ball? Oh, for now, guys. yeah. Yeah, these guys. Yeah. These guys are unbelievable. I, it's actually kind of been overwhelming because we reached out to really high-level athletes from major college uh, football and basketball programs, as well as pro overseas programs. And, you know, we thought we'd have to have this whole sales pitch, right? There was this thing. It started in a warehouse on uh, a court made out of spare parts. They're like, hey, hey, stop talking. I've been trying to play slam ball for the last three or four years because slam ball stays in my social media feed. And that's the craziest part of this whole thing. A couple of years ago, people started posting 20-year-old highlights of slam ball on the internet with the hashtag bring back slam ball and media associated with that garnered half a billion views. And we weren't posting it. It was overtime elite. It was barstool sports. It was ESPN's Instagram. It was Jason Tatum. And these are the people that were clamoring for slam ball to come back and millions and millions and millions of people piled into that. So that's why we're back here today. And these athletes that showed up are by far the best athletes that have ever played slam ball. These guys are extremely high level, extremely talented, and very skilled since the three-point revolution. You've got a lot of shooting out there, high-level professional caliber shooting out there. So if there was a knock against slam ball back in the day, it's that yeah, that I think is legitimate. It was like you saw the same play over and over again. And I think you're going to see a better mix of action on the court this time around. And I think that's going to make it much more engageable and followable. Mason, hearing you know your story and reading about it and then knowing you're not giving up, you know, in the creative world, how easy it is to give up. And here we are 21 years since it happened. It's going to be on ESPN this Friday against 7 Eastern. Uh, you deserve a lot of credit for maintaining this kind of commitment to it, man, because most people would not have been able to do that. Thank you so much. That's so great to hear. And, and that's, that's kind of what keeps me going. The thing that I've learned through the years is that the world will take things away from you. But the one thing it can't take away is your choice never to give up. And that's what I've kind of held on to all this time. Also with this like sneaking suspicion that I might be right and this might actually have legs. Uh, the, the big swing here is that we're the UFC of team sports. And I'm going to keep saying that until it's true. Well, looking forward to it again. Congrats on uh, getting the relaunch of this. And uh, like I said, I can't wait. Thank you, Ryan. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. 
From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. The email address is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Uh, just a reminder for Friday feedback. That email address is fridayfeedbackrr.com. Um, so far, it feels a bit like a complaint box, uh, <laughs> which was not shocking. But if you have maybe a follow-up on a life advice or something like that, you know, some sort of forum where uh, this experiment could be very short-lived. So. If you want to like soft launch a topic, maybe, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So you yeah, guys yeah, should yeah. talk about this thing that happened in the, in the news. I don't know. Just stuff that you find interesting. Doesn't, I, I'm, we're not opposed to criticism, but shouldn't all be criticism. Yeah. Not even asking for positive feedback. You're just <laughs> like, just don't, don't <laughs> shit all over everything in the inbox. That's all. <laughs> no, I want, I want criticism. I just don't want it to be pointless. So there's just, there's a few in there that you're just like, Wait, is this what it is? And so far, uh, there's a couple of good things in there. So we'll we'll do that episode. We'll kind of see where it goes. Uh, an announcement to make. Yes, I am an actor. Pause for applause. If you saw Buddy Game Spring Awakening, good friend Josh Duhamel. Uh, I'm in the beginning of it. Wow. And there's some heavy hitters. Some heavy hitters in that one. And it's pretty funny because everybody that they run through this montage. I mean, it's the very beginning of the movie. I mean, usually they put the stars in the beginning, so it makes sense. But um, <laughs> they've run through all of these news people announcing the death of this character. And then there's me in a Blue Jays hat in my kitchen with like a blender and a toaster in the background. So like full-blown Dan Patrick studio, uh, Seacrest is going there. Uh, this guy's from Fox News. That's there, like all in their studios. And then I'm just sort of in my kitchen. And I was like, you guys use this. So thank you. Check it out. So uh, you, you got out of the, you got out of the, the, uh, the, the guest room for that one. You were like, let me just work, work with what I got here. Yeah. The guest room really bums. Well, I actually think the guest room made a lot of people happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a different way though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I went up to the kitchen. I think the audio was better in the kitchen anyway, too. So that's uh, that's where we were, and that's what we were doing at the time. But we've since uh, added an office, so we're good. Things are good now. Uh, so I'm in that. Go ahead. You on strike now? Obviously. Nice. Stay strong. Not many times you can have a guy strike two different industries. That's right. Yeah, he's been, he's been on strike, dude. Yeah, come yeah, on. That's, that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's my bad. Yep. Recognize what's going on out there, Surdy. All right. Another small announcement, too. Uh, it's a bit of a life advice thing, but uh, was at the gym yesterday. Got some shots up. And I noticed another guy at the other end kind of going through a routine. I wasn't really paying attention to his game. I wasn't familiar with his game. But he looked like, you know, he was all right. And, and uh, then he set up a tripod over by where I was shooting. And started filming. And I wasn't 100% sure. I was like, let me make sure this is on. And I went over to the corner. And I looked. And I was like, it's recording. 
And then I just went up to him. I was like, are you recording this? And he's like, yeah. And he was nice. He's like, yeah, I'm about to start dunking. It was a bit like, ooh, you know, Bobby Sura style, right? Like I was like, oh, okay. Because I hadn't seen him dunk yet. So I was like, are you going to film these? I'll just say like, I didn't, I don't know if he had that in him. I didn't stick around because he was like, yeah, don't worry about it. You won't be in it. Mostly. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly, Kyle. The most important word, mostly. And I went, so you are videotaping? He's like, yeah. He's like, why? I was like, I don't want to be in it is why. And he kind of just looked at me. So just another lesson. Stop fucking taping people at the fucking gym. (laughs) We don't want to be in your fucking content that nobody watches. Unless you're really hot. (laughs) It's so annoying. Stop. This isn't your home studio. Rant over. Need to be said. Was the guy hot? No, it was totally cordial. I just left. My back hurt anyway. So who are we kidding? But uh yeah, I just I, I mean, he might even listen to the pod. I don't know. Because he gave me a little glimmer. A little glimmer. I, but you just bummed him out. Average looking dude? Like, are we talking hot or no? Like, could he be could he have a little following or no? Uh I don't know. Hmm. I don't have All a right. problem with him. He wasn't yeah, objectively no. handsome, you're saying? All right, I'm just asking. Well, it wasn't John Hamm out there, but yeah, yeah I, sure. I wouldn't say he was unattractive. But okay. I just, I Wait, think how old the do you freedom. Think he was? I feel like he was older than 20s. I think he was like 30. I'm you know what I think of what stuck. the purpose would be? Like, what? Why? Like, was he just doing this? Was he actually trying to like put a workout tape out there somewhere? Or is he just like, I'm going to put this on Instagram to see if I can get some dates? I don't know. He might be awesome at basketball. He might be awesome at dunking. It might be really fun for him. But the point is, <laughs> figure out a place where you can do it when nobody else is around. Because the other people don't want to be in your videos. We don't want to be in the background working out while you're doing your shit. You know, this is this whole tripod shit to see how your deadlifts are going. You know, fucking deadlift in your garage if you're going to film everything. <laughs> oh, I don't have expensive ways. Stop fucking filming us is my counter argument to you not being able to buy a barbell. Nah, it's bullshit, man. It's it's totally, totally out of control. The freedom that people think that it's like, no, Jim, my membership, I've got to see how these rope pull downs are going. I'm getting all the way down. I got the right angle. Am I staying engaged the entire time? <laughs> I'm going to check, check check tape later. <laughs> I think there's been a lot of issues at my gym because there's signs now. It's like, just so you know, when you're in here, you're consenting to being filmed by anyone and everyone. What? Because I think, peop- I think it people- It says that? Yeah, yeah. Like in the actual, like the main part of the gym, it's just like, you know, you can't go up to people and tell them not to, you know, film their shit basically. So they're just like, it's like, it's by the water fountains because I think enough people have probably, you know, came almost to blows and then went and found a manager and the manager's like, well, our bylaws say that we can't stop people from doing it or whatever. So now there's, there's some, there's some, uh, you know, and the, and the bathrooms and locker rooms, it says the exact opposite thing, but on the, on the outside of like, you know, the shared space, it's just like, just so you know, there's, there's cell phones and, and cameras rolling here. So, um, you can't really make a big stick about it. So, but you know, maybe that's what you get when you go to Equinox, you get that little, little bit of uh, extra policy there, but yeah, Gold's is, Gold's is camera friendly, apparently. All right, that's all. That's all I have on the topic. Let's read some emails. 
Girls keep thinking I'm a loser, but I'm not. All right. Let's find out. Yeah, right. <laughs> Love the show. Born, raised Colorado. Nuggets fan. Massive Nuggets fan. Still bathing in glory. Late 20s. Actually born the exact same day as Jokic. It's almost like your buddies. 5'11", 170. Comp is like Kyle Korver or maybe Jimmy Fredette. Sounds like this guy's white. Pretty textbook form, and I could always shoot from anywhere. Not exactly uh, winding athleticism, though. I'm still in pretty good shape, and I try to work out every other day. This may be relevant to your advice. I'm a pretty solid eight. Okay. If if I'm just giving myself the most honest assessment possible. Eight's up there, pal. That's pretty honest. Yeah. Eight's fucking hot. Eight's up there. Yeah. Eight is like a weathered nine. <laughs> right. Like if, you, if you're in your like 40s. And uh, nines could be tens. It'd be only because there's a few people out there that you have to call a ten. Like there's some nines that should be tens. And if you're a weathered nine, eight's high. I think eight's probably high. You know what? Just for exercise purposes here, who's a who's a male ten? So do you want to go first? Can you even can you even narrow the list down to one? <laughs> He's um, the perfect guy to ask. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's it's pretty subjective though, right? I mean, it sure is. But yeah. you know, I like my guy Chalamet, but I know that he's not going to be your two guys type. So I, it's just okay if I think he's higher. You be like you know, you wouldn't say that guy's a ten, whereas no. other people might say he's a ten. I think you have to be a little strong to be a ten, like just a little strong. I kind of agree with you on that, actually. I don't know if he is a ten. I think Idris Elba's probably an easy ten. I don't know who'd have a problem with that. Ooh, mixing it up, Kyle. I don't hate that. You know, a little gray, a little salt and pepper action. Yeah. Oh yeah. Come on, it's my type of dude. <laughs> I mean, look, DiCaprio's not a ten. DiCaprio's mm. definitely not a ten. No. no, I don't think so. You got, I mean, I don't, have you seen Have you seen him out and about, dude? I don't know. Brad Pitt pretty good prime, out and about. Prime DiCaprio. I don't think so. Black I don't think Cap- movie set DiCaprio. Maybe I don't know. If you see that guy out and about, you're like, what the fuck is he up to? He's kind of got a gut, yeah. And this isn't no disrespect to him. Like he's obviously oh, a great actor. I wasn't even but going there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. He, the the, the gun videos. He needs to tighten it up. <laughs> but he could have been. The, I mean, <laughs> right, right. I don't know. Some people really like the dad bods. I think you'd have to have like a decent level of like body attractiveness to also be a ten. And I feel like Chalamet just doesn't have it in the chest. At least not now. No, but not he shows he a lot of chest. Thing. He shows a lot of chest now. He's like the he's a big blazer with no undershirt guy. Which yeah, you know. but I I feel like spindly shoulders. I just don't. I'm not saying he's not hot. I'm just saying like is Tom Hardy. I mean, Joan Hall is the number one. I mean, I, I I keep going back to this, but like Joan Hall, he's got gray hair. He looks kind of older while still looking a little bit youthful. He's he's muscular. I would say he's probably one. Hardy is a Hardy is I feel like a too little weird. Bit too, he's a little bit too rugged, and I like that, but he's a little too rugged. Too rugged. <laughs> well, too rugged. He's also for you, he's maybe. also sneaky short. He's also sneaky short. Isn't he like five eight? What about John Hamm then? John Hamm's a great looking guy. He's not a yeah. 10, though. Like, he might be a 10, and then a 10 walks by, and you're like, oh, fuck, that's why we have a 10, because that guy's hotter than John Hamm. All that's fair. what I'm saying. Nines yeah. could be 10s. What about right, Skarsgård? So, Skarsgård? No. Tall. I, I don't think he's a 10. Okay. I don't think he's a 10. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe there isn't a 10. But this guy's guy just, a 10. Hey, look, here's what we need to know about the email. He's just a step below these guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he's having trouble with the lady. You ever, you ever see that? There's like this thing on Instagram now. It's probably on TikTok too. I'm just old. Is that uh, like 
they'll they'll go up to somebody and ask them, hey, like, what do you think you are on a scale of one to ten? And they'll be like, you know, I'm an eight or I'm yeah, a nine. Right, right. And then they show like, say it's a girl, and then they'll show dudes and be like, oh, two. <laughs> and other people just absolutely crush them. <laughs> so because everyone obviously always thinks that they're way hotter than them, and it just throws it right in their face. It's pretty great. Kind of mean, but great. Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of self-described sevens out there. Yeah, seven's like a like, safe number. And because right. that, I would say I'm a six. Because there's your, a lot of your sevens, personality like bumps you up. And you're tall. All right. Really tall. Okay. All right, here we go. Six and a half. Uh, so our guy's an eight. Anyway, I've been blessed enough to not work uh, nine to five, not super loaded or anything, but not a big spender. House, car paid off. Well, in 20s, house, car and paid off. That's, I mean, car is one thing, but to have the house paid off, that's pretty great. No debt, enough money to be comfortable in my simple life. I do have a smaller YouTube channel. Um, he's got a decent subscriber number here. So a lot of my time is spent working on that. It's mostly just for fun. Although I'm, maybe this guy is hot. I mean, that's why he's got all the subs. Uh, although I'm somewhat passionate about it, but my big passion is helping cats. Fake alarm, fake email alert going off here. <laughs> <laughs> but my real passion is helping cats. All right, let's stay with it. I'm actually a lot like Kyle's wife from what I've heard in regard to having massive compassion for animals. So yeah, I'm kind of like a freelance cat helper. I kind of unofficially work with various organizations, helping cats in need, rescuing, helping them find homes, etc. Other than that, I do normal life stuff like taking care of the house errands, all the daily crap, taking care of my own cats. Biggest hobby is betting on and watching sports. NBA is my fave. I basically study it for fun. Also really into gaming. I'm single. I haven't had a girlfriend for like three years. I'm not desperate at all. I really like my life and I'm not sitting here depressed over not having a girlfriend, but still in a perfect world. I would like to date if I could find someone I like. So I went out with this girl I met randomly. She was very cool, pretty. Uh, we were getting along until she asked me what I do. I think I said something like, quote, I do a lot of things, trying to deflect and keep it light. <laughs> but she kept asking follow-up questions. I could tell she was waiting for me to say I work for such and such company and my title is what, you know, fill in the blank X. I didn't want to just say, oh, I'm rich enough to not have to work a traditional job. I also didn't want to give her the impression I was some big YouTuber or a failing YouTuber. Neither are really true. So I stumbled over my words, but eventually I ended up telling her I don't have a standard job or career. I could see her whole vibe shift. I could just tell she was thinking, okay, how do I get out of the state with this unemployed deadbeat loser? I tried to explain, but probably, probably made it worse. That. Yep. The day ended. Uh, guarantee I'll never hear from her again. I'm not sitting here heartbroken or anything, but I'm worried about this going forward. I'm not sure how to deal with this on future dates when they inevitably ask what I do. Any advice on how I can do this without lying and without coming off like an unemployed deadbeat loser? I'm confident in who I am and I love my life and I do have a college degree if that matters. I'm not insecure <laughs> about what I've done and who I am. This story is building. I love it. Here we go. Cat rescue to like, here's, here's me. I'm going to open my shirt. <laughs> Unless I'm shallow, I'm just having trouble with the presentation. Any advice? I'm just having trouble with the presentation. That's what I was going to say. Any advice would be appreciated. I'm just hoping you guys don't hit me with the BS crazy cat person stereotype. We won't do that. You didn't we make might it that have. far. I was going to, but he, did, yeah. he didn't make it that far. Yeah, we, there was a chance that was going to happen, but we'll uh, we'll pivot away from that. Uh, it's not like that at all. I do have four cats, but my house is very <laughs> clean, organized, no. and does not smell. I've just always had a big heart for animals, especially cats. I'm not even worried about that when it comes to dating because I wouldn't want to date a girl who doesn't like cats anyway. It doesn't well, want good news. Cats. <laughs> good news. A lot of girls like cats. Uh, yeah, but I feel right, like cat I know. guy is a little bit of a red flag. And and it's hard to make, like when you walk into a, like a, somebody's crib that has a cat, 
It's like 50. It's like a coin toss, whether the cat's going to like you. And you got four coin tosses going. You might not <laughs> feel safe in that place. I don't feel safe around a bunch of cats. Totally get it. Totally get it. Uh, but here's the thing. If his house is paid off, he's making enough money that he doesn't have to really work the traditional job. He's got the college degree. If he's an eight, uh, you're going to meet somebody. And it appears that you're basing your whole like doubt in your presentation off of one date that didn't go well, because it sounds like you have pretty good insights, like you have good reads on the other date. and It's not working out all this stuff here. Here's look, man. Unfortunately for the guys out there, it's kind of up to us to sell ourselves whenever this interaction happens. I mean, eventually the selling kind of goes both ways. But in the beginning, it always feels like the guy has to sell himself a little bit. And I would notice with some of my more successful friends, both um, on and off the field, that they were just good at creating whatever version of them they needed to. And it doesn't mean it was a lie. And I'm not telling you to lie. I'm not telling everyone to go out and lying. But like, there's a way I could tell you what I do. Um, I'd be like, hey, what do you do? Oh, I do a sports podcast. Oh, you do a sports podcast? Like, okay. What else do you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, you do. I mean, honestly, I don't know if Big Cat had this line, but it's like there needs to be another like definition of podcasting for ones that are like, I mean, it sounds like a dick thing to say, but there should be like an an oral blue check of podcasts. Yeah, I do a monetized where, podcast. Yeah, I do. I yeah. do one that's yeah. not a hobby. <laughs> um uh yeah. So anyway, that's that's an aside. But like, yeah, hey, I do a sports podcast. Be like, oh, you used to be at ESPN and now you're just doing a sports podcast. Yep. You know, or if I were meeting somebody, be like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, well, I don't know. That is going to sound like I'm fucking being arrogant to the audience here, which I don't really want to do. But you understand the point. You are giving the shitty version. You are giving them because you're somehow trying to hide it or you're not as proud of it as you should be. You need to take what it is that you're doing and learn a better way to present it where you say, hey, look, I went to college. I studied this. I knew right away it wasn't for me. I had this idea for this YouTube channel and it works like and you don't have to go, hey, here's how much money I make every year. But dropping in a for the one girl that thinks it's a little arrogant that you said you already paid off your house, there's going to be 10 that think it's awesome. Okay. I think it's awesome and I'm not trying mm -hmm. to date you. I'm proud of you. I don't know you. Good for fucking you that you have a thing that's monetized enough that you can pay off where you live. These are all great things, right? So you need to take what you don't need to change anything about you. You have a good story to tell. You have to be better at telling the story. So if the vibes that you're getting as you downplay yourself, you're fucking downplaying yourself in the date. Why is she going to talk you up? She doesn't know you yet. That's what relationships are for when you come home and you're down on yourself. And then she's supposed to build you up, even if she thinks you're delusional, then eventually you'll break up anyway. But the point is, you're doing a bad job of telling your story and you have a great story to tell. So shave the edges off of it, right? Put a little polish on it. Put a polish on your story. Figure out what it is like, hey, I found this lane. It's been really cool. I don't have to work a normal job. My long-term play is this. It's been really great so far. And it's fun because it allows me to be creative. And we're doing that. And again, I don't know what your channel is. I'm not interested in it. I'm just telling you there's a way to make the same thing that you're doing sound way better than you almost apologizing for it. Because when you apologize for it, it shows um, 
maybe a vagueness that she doesn't understand it. So now she can't go back and tell her friends what it is that you do, because that's a big part of it. Fair or not, it's the truth. Um, women don't like people that are insecure. They don't. Now, maybe you met one that does. Save us the email. The confidence thing is real. So if you're also selling a lack of confidence in that date because you're trying to like downplay what it is that you do as opposed to being proud about it, like that's another thing. That has nothing to do with even what your job is. But if you're projecting a lack of confidence, it's going to fuck you up, especially in those first first impression moments that are you can't ever get them back. It's almost impossible to get those back unless your first impression is so bad then it becomes a great second impression story intro because you have some sort of like, hey, remember that? Whatever. Boom. You know, you got to be a rare breed to pull those off, but I've seen it happen. So I think it's pretty simple. Figure out a way to tell your story a lot better than you're telling it because it's it actually could be packaged as a really cool thing and would seem attractive as opposed to like sketchy, weird, and not impressive. Yeah, I, I mean punch up your resume for all sorts of, of, of different situations. This one, uh, absolutely. And the other thing I was thinking, like, you know, if you've got some disposable funds and you want to pass a lie detector test, why don't you just set up a little E-Trade thing and then you got to, you know, you buy Amazon at this and you sell it when it goes to this and you can say, you know, I'm doing a little trading, I'm doing a little this, I'm doing a little that. Like, and then you're like actually doing something. You could say you're actually, you know, and it's not so you're right. you want... Yeah, whatever, whatever you want. You could, But like, you could actually, you're, you wouldn't be lying if you're like, you know, I'm doing some trading, you know. And watching the Amazon's uh, fluctuate or something, well, whatever. No, no offense, but, Kyle. That seems like a massive waste of time. Like to just why? set up an E trade to prevent the lie. Well, that I've been you're I've, day trading. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's actually working pretty well for some of my buddies. Um, so, well, uh, it is because tech's on fire right now. Get back to me in the next swing. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm just uh, no. I'm I just, just saying, you know, like, yeah, I just know. Yeah, no, a bunch of geniuses. I got it. If if you're if you're um, if you're saying. Like, if you don't like the way it sounds that you're only doing that, I'm just saying, like, you know, do something easy that you could say you're also uh, doing that to make money. I, I, but yeah, but I mean, the thing think, he's doing, I, I'm sorry, like, Kyle, I guess. On, I'm and just, by the way, is his is his YouTube what's causing all this windfall of cash? Because he was just like, he was like, I also have a YouTube channel. But like, where did, does that where no, the, the money came from? No, the subscriber number, apparently, uh, this number's a good number. Like, it 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 means you can make some money. And clearly oh, okay. he's making so money. So it is all from YouTube. It wasn't like he's got this other money that's like there. You know what else I'm realizing here is like the same time, like when I meet somebody and then I'm like, oh, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I'm a podcaster. That person, if they don't know anything about me, they're going to be like, cool, man, like double thumbs up, like fuck off. I imagine it's the same for YouTubers. Gotta be. Where it's like, oh, I'm a YouTuber. Even like, worse. Are you? They think more adults listen to podcasts. <laughs> I think. I just feel like don't don't girls usually like that too? Like if if you have kind of have an exotic job, they want to tell their friends like, "Hey, I met this guy and he has like this YouTube channel." Even if it's not something that they're interested in, it's just it's like that's that you you should use that as a selling point as Ryan was saying. You have to reframe what your uh, you know, kind of what your what your vibe is, I guess, or what you're, you know, what you're putting out to the world because that's that could be a huge plus for you even if, you know, or or if you just be super vague about it, just say, "Hey, I work in like video YouTube, whatever, and don't even have to say you're a host. That's get great. to know them a little bit more. And then as you go on more dates, you kind of explain what you actually do. And then you actually let your personality come out a little bit more. And then she's less likely to just like meet you for a half an hour and then say, fuck this guy, I'm out. 
she's actually a little bit more invested in you. And you can kind of explain the long term of what you do and what you want to do. So maybe on the first day, you just kind of keep it super vague. Say I'm in video, say I'm in YouTubing. Um, in the media. Yeah, I'm in new media. Exactly. And then she'll be like, oh, that's cool. And then, you know, she knows your house is paid off. You got all these, you know, you obviously got a good setup going. So there aren't really many like red flags about you. And then you can kind of soft sort of introduce the rest of what your gig is and what your long term plan is. But I think I think either way, it's either a good thing right up front or just be vague about it. And also I day trade. I don't know about it, that. It also <laughs> and I also know age. that was such a great soft spot for Ryan to hit because I you probably listened to I remember Canel in the studio like trading during the show and Ryan used to get so pissed off about that. No, that goes all the way back to Van Pelt. Yeah, but yeah, I used to day trade during the show with Van Pelt and then Canel. Yeah. I would not advise that if you want to be a talk show host nope. to be doing that. Because I had some bad days. And they'd be like, coming up next. <laughs> it's Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> in the first tier of Hall of Fame quarterbacks for his era on ESPN Radio. Fuck. And I would just be like, <laughs> motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> hey, some good days, some bad days. All right, but you just, you remember the losses more than the wins. This is the way it is. It was great. Once I got desensitized to it, it was an awesome feeling. I was like, wow, now I don't even... Just Isn't a even full blown, yeah, yeah. I'm a full blown <laughs> user now. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> hey, you got to get your ass kicked a few times before you can figure out if you can fight, right? So, uh, <laughs> sure. Let's see here. I think I think we have it. Kyle, though, saying the day trade part makes me think of like what would be the best like three sentences of what your resume is to be the biggest turnoff, even if some of the things were real and going well for you. Be like, I'm a YouTuber, I podcast, I day trade. Yeah, that's pretty uh, bad. <laughs> I, I met this guy. He's a YouTuber and a podcaster. He day trades a little bit and he mostly <laughs> focuses some content on health and wellness. Well, he got thrown the cats part too. <laughs> yeah, and he's, got, and he's got four cats. <laughs> Leave that part out, I would say. Yep. Okay, uh, here we go. Travel. Let's finish this one quick here. Uh, solo traveler etiquette. Hello, gentlemen. 35, 510, 180 was a mini pistol Pete on the fourth grade traveling B team. Gone downhill athletically ever since. Uh, thought this would be a good dilemma for a fellow solo traveler, Ryan, to solve. I was on Amtrak, uh, Amtrak recently by myself, per usual, going home to see family was sitting next to a middle-aged woman. Little to no interaction between the two of us kept uh, just keeping to ourselves. About an hour into a six-hour trip, she started to get up and ask me if I would watch her suitcase. Without much debate in my mind, I said, no, sorry. <laughs> yes. yes. She made, she made it. I loves it. She made a huff, grabbed her suitcase, and muttered, unbelievable. Didn't see her the rest of the trip. On the one hand, I understand her annoyance as she uh, too appeared to be a solo traveler. And I know how frustrating it can be to even just use a restroom while traveling alone and having to lug everything with you. On the other hand, I have no idea who she is, where she's going, how long she'll be gone. I don't want a George Costanza situation. There was also a non-zero fear that this was some kind of setup. Like she gets back and says, hey, what happened to my insert expensive item here? So he, she gave off zero concerning vibes and you still said no? Uh, I told my family about the incident and they thought I was a total jerk. Yep. I know it would have been the nice thing to say yes, but I don't think I'm automatically a jerk by saying no. Given the horrible situation I've seen out of fellow travelers in past years, my general feeling is I don't know any of these people anything, though I'm always very 
courteous and respectful to train flight attendants, gate agents, etc. If you work in the industry, I got your back. If you're another traveler, fuck yourself. Fuck you. Um, so was this a jerk <laughs> move? Uh, yeah, I don't even think this is debatable. I can't believe you said no. I would say yes, but I applaud you saying no. You literally could have asked all of the questions to this woman that you asked us. Like, how long are you going to be gone? I, I, my stop's coming up in a couple. Like, just give her a couple. It, it, what else are you doing, too? You're on a fucking train, guy. Like, what, where are you? Like, it's not like you got a lot of things going on at the moment. Just watch your freaking suitcase. I, I, I hate this. No, I think if you don't want to do it, don't do it. And don't explain why either. Why would you not want to do it, though? If you're not, to Saruti's point, if you're going to be sitting there, like, where do you think she's going? How long do you think she's going to be gone? Yes, there are versions of this. You don't have to send us the emails about how annoying it could get if the person didn't come back or whatever. But like, guess what? If they don't come back, does it mean find you can't it, find ever the, move? Right. Yeah, find like an attendant. Just say, hey, this woman left this bag. She sat here. I got to get off. It is what it is. I can't believe you said no. Yeah, I I'm, wouldn't I'm say a little no. surprised, but... Uh... I'm happy for you, man. I hope you say no, like for anything else to inconvenience yeah. you like that. That's great. Kyle, don't trade, don't trade seats on planes. Uh, you know, you are the normalized no guy. So you know, I do. I understand why you have to take the stance, but you're wrong. Yeah, I know. I know. It's hard, but I'll get over it. It's important to me, though. Also, like acting like she's like she's gonna come back and say, "Hey, I had two bags here, actually," and then all of a sudden, like <laughs> sue you. Like that's in, like. What are, we, what are we doing? I, I actually hate people that live their life that way, too, that are constantly thinking that people are going to, like, pull, you know, pull one over on them. Like, I don't know, man. Like, it just just helps somebody out. It's not that hard. Usually I'm on the other side of this, but I think this is a dick move. Yeah, I, I think we agree. I don't know why Kyle, salt of the earth Kyle over here, loves the move because you say yes. I don't You'd love it. I would yes. say yes. But I think it's your right to say no and not explain why. <laughs> it's definitely what your are right, the reasons, but it's also what right are the reasons, tell you're an idiot. <laughs> Well, you know what? This is just going to open a list of which, like hypotheticals of like, well, one time actually when I was traveling. Okay. But yeah, for I'm not going to say us, that. Right? You're a stranger and I don't want anything more to do with you than just ending this conversation right now with a no. That's it. It's like the Gladwell book. Like imagine how unproductive we would be if we defaulted at the opposite of trust or truth, right? Like we default to truth. If everything we thought was like, oh, this guy's out to get me, which again, <laughs> I'm pretty guilty of, to be honest with you, yeah. myself. But yep. Um, <laughs> More in business, more in business. Uh, Not just your fellow man who's just looking to, or woman trying to help, you know, trying to, a little bit of help. Maybe she had a lot of shit going on. Maybe she really had like a bathroom incident that she needed to get to. And you're just, you know, you just created like a shit, you know, crappy day for her. Like I'm getting a bracket installed for a television. What if I, what if I ask those guys, like, is this made of aluminum? Like, did you guys mount this the right way? Like, oh, how, I got to double check what your pricing was for this. Like if you just did that with everything all of the time, that's not even the worst example. It's just, there has to be some compromise. There's some contract we have with strangers <laughs> that if we didn't, I don't know. I think he was in the wrong and I think your family was right. I think there was an easy solution. You could have just asked, hey, how long are you going to be gone? Because yeah, I she wasn't like, hey, watch my, five hours. watch my kid. You know, like it's a bag. <laughs> it's not that big of a I would have. Like I love kids. Yeah, hang sure. out. What's his name? What are his interests? <laughs> Hi, I'm a YouTuber and a day trader. All right. Uh, what's up? All right. That's it for us. We'll be back. Actually, uh, some things are getting moved around here. So uh, I'll be back with a full week next week. And I can't tell you how excited I am about it because we actually have some awesome guest shit lined up here. Uh, so thanks to Steve. Thanks to Kyle. Ron Russillo Podcast. Please subscribe. Bring your Spotify. Bye.